This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You're listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Thank you for joining us this week on the Tell Me the Story podcast. If you heard last week's episode, you'll know that This week we will be concluding chapter 10. There is a lot to unpack here. Uh, And if you didn't hear last week's episode, I encourage you to go and listen to it. Not because I want you to hear every episode so that we have higher numbers, but because if you only hear the last third of chapter 10, the things that we say about the totality of the chapter might be a little bit confusing. But regardless, without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right back into the episode where here at the beginning, you'll hear me talk about uh, this very important concept that uh, plays an important role in the story of the Bible that's introduced here in the earliest chapters of Genesis and is even playing an important function in this Toledot. And that concept is men giving birth. Men giving birth? Yes, I know it sounds crazy, but it's there in the Hebrew. And it's really hard to pick up on in English, but in Hebrew, due to the uh, intelligence of Hebrew verbal forms, it's really obvious that the authors are playing with the way that we hear the text to communicate something vitally important to the biblical story. And then after that, we'll get into Canaan's descendants and finish out the chapter. So thank you for being here with us. Let us hear. So before we continue with the names, I want to point out one thing. The concept of begetting or fathering, as the section we are about to read talks about. It's it's very interesting in scriptural Hebrew, and I won't claim to have every answer to every nuance, but in large strokes, there are some very clear, distinct patterns. And I am of the conviction that they mean something. The verbs are applied specifically in specific circumstances and specific passages. All this specificity is not some grammatical coincidence. It is also not just something that is noticed when read by a scholar, but can be heard when the text is read aloud in the original Hebrew, which is how it was intended to be heard. And, depending on the translation, differences can even be heard in English. Now, I don't want to over-speculate, but just elaborate on how the word has been qualified in the story thus far to help us understand what's going on here and what kind of story we are being prepped for. Remember, all of these names, whether they play major roles in the story later on or minor roles, they are setting up the story for us. They will be elaborated on in the story for us. 
They're going to be the antagonists um, and sometimes antiheroes in the literature. It's, it's complex. I like how Father Paul Tarazi puts it. It's not complicated. We make it complicated. It's not complicated. It's complex. And we have to put in the work. So the verb that I'm talking about with begetting or fathering is the verb yalad. The verb yalad is the root that means to bring forth, to birth, or produce. In Genesis, the verb was first applied to the woman who birthed Cain, Abel, and Seth, and just before that, it was used when she was being cursed to have pain in childbearing. The verb means to produce or bring forth. That's how it's used in the language. When it's applied to a human, it means the human is birthing or bearing a child. When the verb is applied to a man, if it's in its basic form, the calstim formation, it does not change meaning. It is saying that the man birthed or brought forth the offspring, which should sound ridiculous. Only a female can produce an offspring, provided the seed, obviously, but nonetheless, it's the female producing. The authors play around with the forms intentionally. For instance, in the Sefer Toledot, the book of the generations of Adam, the male figures of the Toledot have this verb applied to them, but it is always with the hifil stem, which means the verb is being caused to happen. This is less of a problem thematically. The male characters in this Toledot are participating in the bringing forth of the offspring. They are not, however, like the characters in the lineage of Cain in the chapter in chapter 4. The word form is different. It starts out in the Nifal stem, but starting with Enoch, the males in Cain's dynasty are birthing. They are Yadal, their progeny, because the simple form of the verb, the calstem formation, is being used. Obviously, the authors don't mean to say that the males in Cain's dynasty are physically giving birth. Rather, it alludes to the fact that they are taking total control of the process of producing offspring, which is a tremendously wicked ordeal. This should be obvious to those of us who have heard the stories of royal monarchs, such as King Henry VIII, who obsessed over producing a male heir to the point that he literally had some of his wives killed in his spiraling frustration. It's precisely this type of yarad, or birthing, done by Cain's sons, starting with Enoch, in a threefold progression that produces the first king, Lamech, who takes two wives in chapter 4, the first man to do so. In scripture. This is where the English term baguette comes in. We don't have it too much in our modern language, so it sounds a little bit like I'm, I'm talking about the French bread, a, bag, a baguette, but I'm not. It's baguette. It's an older English term. You find it in the ESV, the King James Bible. A lot of English translations use it. So to baguette is to produce, um, and often it is specifically used in the case of a male being the prime producer or participant in the process of producing offspring, which is obviously problematic as we hopefully are starting to see. No matter how good of a dad a guy might end up being, he is not at all involved in the arduous process of pregnancy. It's between the woman and God. End of story. This is why the term is often associated with kingships. A king begets his offspring because he essentially can use any woman he wants to produce progeny, functionally removing the woman's participation, like our earlier, much more recent example with King Henry VIII. So clearly the term beget works in English, but the choices that English translators make in terms of where to use it is what causes issues and hides the original implications of this story. As I said earlier, the verb used with the hephil stem in Adam's Toledot or genealogy should not be beget, 
because it is nuanced in saying Adam and the other members of the genealogy caused the bringing forth of their offspring, and logically they caused it by providing the seed, right? That's how procreation works. This is in perfect contrast to Cain's line in the previous chapter, where starting with Enoch, they are bringing forth the offspring themselves. And, and keep in mind that Enoch, all of this is taking place in the city that Cain built. The city is the place where this calamity begins. They are bringing forth the offspring themselves, not causing the bringing forth of it. When it is the male who is the prime actor in childbearing, we have a problem. One last note is that in Ham's line, which we just read, Cush births or begets the first mighty man, which seems to be an obvious callback to the mighty men before the flood, the Nephilim, the tyrants. Now, some may argue with me and say that the authors are just using synonyms to say the same thing because they don't want to be repetitive. And But they do want to be repetitive. Exactly. <laughs> Not, and, and maybe they say I'm looking into it too much to come up with some fringe theory that I'm excited about. And to that, I just, I say no. The authors have no problem being repetitive elsewhere in the book. So why would they decide that this is the place to avoid redundancy? Yeah, if, if, if they did, I would say, yeah, you guys aren't very good writers, obviously, because you're more repetitive than, like, literally any other piece of literature I've yeah, ever read. Yeah, we can't be so arrogant. A theme is being set up, clearly. So let's look at it. You know, if I'm wrong, then this won't come up again. But if I'm right, then this calamity of men birthing, begetting, making children will surely resurface in some fashion or another. In verse 15, it says, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Het. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So Canaan, the slave of slaves, as we have just heard him called, fathers, or more literally births, begets, as I just discussed, Sidon, which is a Phoenician city on the Mediterranean coast, and Het, which many believe is the ancestral land and, and people of the Hittites. Interestingly, it goes on to name not individuals, but clans, starting with the Jebusites, which come from the root Bus, which means to trample, the Amorites, which is from the root Amar, which is to say, the Girgashites, probably allies of the Hittites, the Hivites, which probably means villagers or those of a tent village, aka a city, but not quite a city. The Archites from the root Arak, which means to gnaw. The Sinites, the Arvadites from a city in Phoenicia. The Zimmerites, which come from the root meaning wool, like a sheep's wool. The Hamathites, which sounds like the progenitor ham, but it is actually from the root Kamat, which is the word for a water skin. Verse 21 says, Tashim also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japhet, children were born. The sons of Shim, Alam, Asher, Arpachsad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Geter, and Mash. Arpachsad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, 
the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Jokthon. Jokthon fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazamarveth, Jara, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jokthon. So we hear that Shem is the father of all the children of Iber. That word Iber is the word for to cross or pass over, which is the word that Haibri comes from, which is the Hebrew. So clearly, the authors are saying that this is the ancestral father of the Hebrews, the characters we follow in the scriptural story. Shem's sons are Elam, which comes from the word meaning to conceal, Ashur, which comes from the word meaning to go straight forward, Arpachshad, which doesn't have a clear meaning, but could be a type of compound word, meaning something like the nose of destruction, but it's not clear, so I won't assert anything. Next is Lud, which is probably referring to the city of Lud or Lydia in ancient times, and Aram, which is Syria. The sons of Aram were Uz, which means to counsel or plan. Hul, which is to be firm or strong. Geter and Mash, and those two couldn't find a clear meaning on those. Apachshad fathered, very interestingly, that is, again, Yalad, he beget, birthed, what we talked about earlier as being very negative. So he begets, or fathers, Shelah, which comes from the word meaning to send. And Shelah fathers Eber. The two sons of Eber were Peleg, which means to divide, and the verse even says, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, which comes from Katon, which is to be small or insignificant, which makes great thematic sense, because the Hebrews, the Israelites later in the story, divide themselves constantly, and are constantly made small by God. But we'll get there. Then, the sons of Yoktan, the small one, goes on to do the negative, Yalad, just like his grandfather, begetting just like the Canaanites did. And he fathers Al-Mandad and Shalef, which means to draw out, Hazarmoetz, which means the village of death, and Jorah, which means moon. Next we have Aram, which means the generations, perhaps, Uzal, which means to go, and then we have Dikla. Notice the emphasis on movement, just like a shepherd. Next, we have Obal, which could be related to the word meaning morning. And then we have Abimail, which uh, means my father is El. And Sheba, again, calling in mind the Sheba of the Hamites. Remember, these are two sides of the same coin. The next names are Ophir, which means gold. And then we have Havilah. Again, remember the gold from the land of Havilah. And Jobab is next. Now, I don't think I've ever been a part of a Bible study, at least among our age group, Rowdy, where you know somebody doesn't laugh and make a joke about Jobab. Oh, you mean old Jobab? Uh, old jo- well, the, the what's funny about it, though, is that all these names are so foreign, and then you got Jobab. Uh, but Jobab's name is anything but funny, because it comes from the, the word Yobab, which means to cry out in a shrill voice. So it's kind of a creepy name. And according to the Septuagint, the Jobab of Esau's descendants, there's another one in Genesis, a descendant of Esau, 
he is identified with the character Job, making this connection extremely evocative. So here we are closing it out. We'll read verses 30 through 32, and thankfully we don't have much to say after that. It says, The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So after all that, I think the main takeaway is that this is not trying to create this modern anthropomorphic descriptor of different races or different uh, people groups in an anthropological sense or like a biological sense or, or whatever or 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 a historical sense Th- these are all functional these are all cities these are all tribes that really existed however they're being arranged not from shared culture or anything like that but from shared function you know you have the Greeks, which are very clearly just those on the other side of the Mediterranean. It's very simple to understand. And then you have the Hamites, which are very clearly these large empires uh, that were surrounding the scriptural authors. And then you have the Shemites, which are those who are ultimately called by God to spread his name to the Hamites and to the uh, Japhethites specifically. Now the Hamites and the Shemites, of course, as we've already said, uh, are two sides of the same coin, meaning that uh, the, the scriptural authors find themselves at the threshold of, of these two types of people, because they are functionally both types of people, depending on uh, where, they're, where they're at. And we'll see that with their character, so to speak, in the scriptural story, that is the the nation of Israel acting as Hamitic and Semitic, depending on what they're doing in the story. So that's the main takeaway. I know that was a lot of names. That was a lot to think about. And of course, the the point isn't to uh, try and make this complicated because like Rowdy said, and like what Father Paul Tarazi has taught, it's not complicated. It's complex because the very simple message is like what I just said, what what the uh, three sons represent as being very clear pictures of every type of person in Scripture. You can you can you can put them all into three different categories, which to me is not complicated at all. It's very simple, and I think it's beautiful because just like any well written epic, you can find a character that you connect with in the story, except the calamity, the the evocation, the thing that makes it tantalizing and intriguing, the thing that makes it taste like honey in our mouths but makes our stomach bitter is the fact that all three of these characters who through their descendants represent every type of person, every person in the Old Testament is bad. Everyone is wrong. Everyone is disobedient. Everyone is wicked. But it is through these descendants that the scriptural teaching is delivered and it is that that will save us sadaqallah alazim alhamdulillah like the tree which is planted
haunted by the street.